listeners, welcome to the next session. An advice podcast for game masters who are seeking help with their next game session. I'm Adam Johns. And I'm Melissa Johns. We're coming at you live from a tunnel. From a little adorable tunnel that we built. A little do- adorable sound tunnel. Well, so what happened is, is that we um, have the sound proofing ready for our new little recording area, but apparently they need 24 hours to poof up. They're not fully poofed. Yes, they're, they're a we've half got, poof. We've got moderate poofed sound panels. Half poofed. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we can't hang them yet, which means we just shove them all in a big box, and now we're looking at each other through a half poofed sound panel box. Yes, which is bad, because if Adam makes me laugh, I won't be able to stop. That's pretty true. Yes. And if I laugh, it will it will echo outside of our soundproof little box. Here. And it might shake the box. Yeah, yeah. that's also possible. Um, but... I think the sound is way better. Yeah, we uh, love your feedback better. because this has been a terrible trial of errors. And for those of you who listened to the last episode, I'm sorry. It I'm was... also sorry, but I didn't really have that much to do with that. No, no. It was <laughs> I just cracked the jokes. It was really hard. I had to edit out a lot of you laughing at me, by the way. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> All right. So our first question comes from... Winged Wolf 99. Winged Wolf. No, winged. Winged Wolf. That yeah. makes much more sense. Like a winged wolf. Like a, wing, like a winged, like a wolf with wings. Like a yes. unicorn, like a pegasus wolf. There you go. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say unicorn wolf. Nope, that's look not like wrong. I look like a real idiot on this Yeah, that, that would be a wolf with a horn. Get yeah. it straight, Johns. Yeah, Come on. That's a, that's a rookie. A rookie mistake. Rookie mistake. Do you even watch My Little Pony? Mm, Come on. Not, I mean, I'm if it a had wings and a cor- professional and a dungeon master, you think <laughs> know the difference between a Pegasus and a unicorn. If it had wings and a horn, what would it be called? It'd be called an alicorn. An ala wolf. Come <laughs> on, <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> yeah, that's totally true. All right, Winged Wolf ninety nine says, "I'm a first time DM, and for my campaign, I've been borrowing from the Adventure Zone style of mini arcs to help tell my overarching story." And I got to say, yes, Adventure Zone, I love them. Oh, yeah. Anytime. Griffin, come on. Get on here. (laughs) That'd be awesome. Anytime, Griffin. Come on. Or any of the... Yeah, any any of of them, really. But but, come on, Griffin. You got it. They go on. I've run two rather straightforward arcs. um, Find out the thing is in the cave. Go to the cave. Get the thing type stuff. But I want to try something different. I want to run a murder mystery arc. The concept is that there is a tree of peace planted in a forest city, and it signifies peace between the races of the city. Makes sense. Tree of peace. Yeah. That tree is poisoned and is dying, and as a result, race wars are heating up. I want them to find out who poisoned the tree and where the cure is. Do you have any sources for advice or recommendations based on your own past efforts for running a murder mystery arc? Hmm. Murder mystery. So I like I like murder mystery arcs. They are tricky to do really well, and I'll explain why. Um, in Dungeons and Dragons, most of the time, what you are doing is you are intersparsing, inter interplacing, nope, interspacing. You are interspacing your uh, clues as to the mystery that you're solving with other stuff, combats, puzzles, social encounters, etc. So uh, basically, you know, I do a combat, and after I defeat those bad guys, I find a letter 
leading me further down the trail of the mystery that I'm trying to solve. So most Dungeons and Dragons campaigns involve some level of exploration or mystery. Either I'm exploring a dungeon or I'm solving some kind of mystery. When you do a murder mystery dinner, what you're really trying to do is that you're trying to interspace clues, but the clues are interspaced only by little bits of role-playing scene. Now, why did you go straight to dinner? I just assumed a murder mystery dinner. It didn't say dinner. No, that's fair. Um, I guess I always picture murder mysteries as a murder mystery dinner. See, I always picture them on a train. Ah, that's your adventure zone right there. Well, not just that, but like it's a very... um, Sure, Orient Express. Exactly, yeah. Orient Express. Classic murder mystery. And like a lot of like cartoons and popular culture, they all spoof off of that. I guess I was leaning towards Clue, the movie Clue. yeah. Which is a murder mystery dinner. Right, which Um, is an excellent movie, by the way. So there are good ways to do this. What you really need to do in order to do in order to have a good setup for a murder mystery is that you kind of need to figure out the murder from the beginning and then work the whole thing backwards. Yeah, I was going to say a murder uh, should have three things. It should have a, um, a motivation. Mm-hmm. It should have um, opportunity. Sure. And it should have means. Means. Yep. That's the thing. Uh, so you need in order to. I was going to go with a weapon, but that, that, means. Was, that was good. You were on the right track. Uh, opportunity, means, and motivation. Those are what police detectives look for in in murder. Um, as you are laying out the clues, my recommendation would be to be explicit with the players about what they're looking for. Not everybody knows what they're what they need in order to solve a murder. Um, then you backwards plan the whole thing. Who made the murder, and how did they do it in a way that was clever? So they killed somebody, and they did it in a clever way. In this case, they poisoned the tree. Um, but they didn't do it in the way that you think they did. They didn't run up to the tree and pour some poison on it. No, they did it in some clever way to prevent them from getting caught. Right, like maybe they they um, swapped out some of the acorns with rotten acorns, mm-hmm. and as the rotten acorns dropped from the tree, it actually poisoned the ground. They um, switched the soil. There's a guy who takes care of the tree and puts new soil down to make sure that it's it stays healthy and fresh. They switched out the soil. Or they poison the water tank that oh, is yeah. used to then water the, the but tree. But they did it without leaving a trace because they froze the poison in ice cubes. Sure. There you go. Uh, so they added a bunch of ice to the soil um, in order to cool it down. Maybe that's done on a regular basis and they just... Uh, poison the ice that was added to this. Yeah, use the ice like like gushers. Yeah. You've got the poison inside. So your first step is figure out who it was, what did they do, why did they do it? Um, how did they do it? You so know, you're, you're the, trying to figure out those. Who, what, where, when, why. Yeah, the who, what, where, and why. So you have to figure that out before you can even start the campaign because that's going to be paramount to you dropping the right clues at the right time. And that's what this any kind of murder mystery is based on is it is the cleverness of the clues and finding out the clues as you go along. The next step is to then set up several other people who could have done it but couldn't because of one of those reasons. Remember our reasons, uh, opportunity, motivation, and means. Right, so there might be a lot of people with the motivation but not a lot of people with the means or there might be somebody with both but not the opportunity so the next step now that you know who killed who who poisoned the tree and how they did it and all that and why then the next step is to go okay now there are several i need to create several other suspects and i need to outline two one or two of the 
three things that they have, but make it very explicitly that they don't have the other thing. Right. So you find the gardener who has means and opportunity, but has no motivation. He's, he's, he has every reason to want the tree to continue to live and yeah, continue to it's, prosper. Well, it is his um, livelihood. Right. And then you have, um, you know, one of the heads of the, the house who has motivation and re- means and and a reason why he might want the tree poison because he's benefiting from the, the race war, but has no opportunity or means. Yeah, and then uh, you have the neighbor whose tree is blocking their sunshine on their pool. and right. So they, they have the motivation, and they may have the opportunity, but they don't actually have any of the means. Right, because maybe the poison is particularly hard to find or requires connection in, this, in an underworld in some particular way, and the neighbor doesn't have those things. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, that's the next step. So now that you've established all those things, you have, some, you have your, your clear person you know did it, and then you have a group of people. Some red herrings. Some red herrings that you know you can throw in that definitely didn't do it and can prove for one reason or another. Can You can give definitive evidence to the players to show that that particular NPC did not do it. Then it is a matter of setting up all the circumstances and letting the, the players explore the pieces. Now, as you do this, I highly recommend that you write down all of your hints that you want to give the players ahead of time. Yes, I was actually gonna gonna jump in mm-hmm. and say that I looked up, I researched a little bit there is a site called the Alexandrian.net. Have you heard of this? I have not. Alexandrian.net has um, a lot of good resources um, for uh, somebody who has been playing D&D for a long time and has essentially has been blogging about it and wrote a post several years ago about murder mysteries, about mur- mysteries, and it's called the Three Clue Rule hmm. from the Alexandrian. And so... Essentially, it boils down to for any conclusion you want the players to make, include at least three clues for each one. Because, and it, you should, I totally recommend reading this post. Actually, what I should do is I should put a link to it on mm, our resource it's page. It's a great idea. So, essentially, what it boils down to is the first clue they're not going to get. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, no matter what, they're just, they're going to go, oh, that doesn't make any sense, or I'm going to save that for later and not get it. The second one, they might just be um, ignorant of it or whatever. But if, if A and B fail, you always have C. or And they can be different kinds of clues. Like there could be a, a lock of hair that matches, maybe is the suspect's hair, but then also there was someone who actually saw it happen or mm-hmm. you know, whatever kind of clue you want to leave. Have two other backup clues for when they don't go for the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's actually... Really good advice, and I recommend this across the board for Dungeons and Dragons stuff. Obviously, for a, a murder mystery like this, this becomes a lot more important. But anytime I'm going, oh my gosh, I need my players to follow the bread clum- breadcrumbs of my of my plotline here. Um, I totally recommend putting a subtle clue, a pretty obvious clue, and then an extremely yeah, obvious. Yeah, and then clue. A, <laughs> I'm handing this to you. Yeah, yeah, and that's the other thing too, like. If there is something like a riddle or something in D&D that they have to get through to mm-hmm. get to the next piece, then they should really be able to just open that door. You know, like that can't be, you can't gatekeep because if they don't go through it, they're going to turn around and do something else. Yes. And that's also something you want to keep in your back pocket here when you're doing something like a murder mystery, um, which is, let's say your players 
are not great at figuring out murder mysteries. <laughs> they're not putting the pieces together. They don't get the instructions. They're basically like, I think you did it, guy who clearly was not actually the right yeah. one, but I didn't bother to figure out any of the other pieces of this, and yeah. so therefore I think it was you. <laughs> Why is it that players can be su- super smart, d- do the Sunday crossword puzzle in pen, and then when it comes to playing D&D, they kind of go, well, I don't know. <laughs> it's not just that. It's it, it works both ways. I will have uh, the most elaborate plot line and mystery, and I'll set everything up. And then right from the beginning, the, there's the, the one friendly NPC, and they're like, yep, he did it. We're going to kill him. And they're absolutely right. And they figured it out right away, even though I didn't give them any clues or hints at all. Right. And they'll totally do that. So it'll it'll swing both ways, and re- really, unfortunately, in a lot of a lot of circumstances. So uh, be prepared. Just be prepared for it to for either for all the players to figure it out. Yeah. You know, day one, uh, and they go, yeah, of course, it was the it was the the the, the king. He was the one who did it, obviously. Yeah. Um, or for the players, and then you know, you just have to kind of roll with that. Either shift your plans. Which or, or sometimes you can do. Or have a giant combat. Or have a or have a big combat prepared and be like, oh well, you skipped over everything else, and so now you're just fighting the king. Um, whatever the case may be, that is the the ultimate you know thing you have to be prepared for. Um, the thing I was going to say was you're absolutely right about the hints um, and clues. I also totally recommend when you're doing a murder mystery that you literally write a sentence for every clue that you want to give to the players, and that you have them in a list so pick you know five clues or something like that these are the reveals that you're going to give to the players as they as they discover different bits of information as they go searching for information uh, you know that you're going to reveal these bits of information ideally you will reveal them in the order you wrote them down so right but it doesn't always happen that way right so most broad to least to most specific so so i totally recommend that you write them all down and then that way you you know exactly what clue you're handing to the players. As soon as they walk into the room and are about to talk to this NPC, you know exactly what clue you want them to walk away away with um, so that you have those all ready. I've actually run Murder Mystery a couple of times uh, in different campaigns. Of uh, course you have. Sometimes very successfully. Um, it's, it's hit or miss. When it's really successful, it's very, very satisfying. It's satisfying for the players. They get to feel like they really solved something. Murder Mystery is like solving a puzzle except that it's uh, a logic puzzle and it comes along with all these intricate pieces. And so it's very, very satisfying to solve. And what's great about it is that unlike a lot of puzzles and riddles, while there is a direct answer, there's so many hints along the way to figure out what that direct answer is so that you really feel like you you are making progress along the way rather than like a riddle where you just either have the right answer or you don't. Um, so when done successfully, it's, it is really a satisfying a satisfying game to, to be able to play and to set up. Mm-hmm. But it does have pitfalls and it does have challenges that you should be prepared for along and the way. It can get frustrating for players if they're really not getting it, which is why you should definitely have your clues tier to um, the level of your players. And that's also why I, I do recommend, especially if you have players that are not necessarily quite so keen on, you know, uh, cop TV shows and stuff like that. I would outline very specifically 
Um, for every NPC that you talk to, here's what you're looking for. You're looking for motive, means, and opportunity. Um, and I would go, I would explain that to the players. You guys are solving a mystery. In order for you to solve this, you need to find somebody who has motive, means, and opportunity. Yeah. I mean, essentially, what is a murder mystery if not you are solving the crime? Right. And so the, I, I would just straight up explain that to the players so that they know exactly what it is that they're looking for. And anytime they start to sort of stray off that path or they forget to ask a crucial question, then I would I would remind them. I would be like, remember, you also need motive, means, and opportunity. He he, you didn't ask him about opportunity, so you got to ask him about that. And you know, maybe the person who did it has to go back and finish the job. Maybe it's you know. Right, you set up a up. sting or a, yeah. or you know something along those lines, or or you know as a means to, um, in, encourage your players to to get to it a little quicker, you know have it happen again, have mm-hmm. you know another another poisoning happening, and half the other half of the tree is starting to wilt or whatever. I know if I was a player, one way that I might go about this would be to if nobody has access to the tree, I might. Um, release a fake news uh, release that says the tree is getting better um, and it'll be healed within a a matter of days, forcing the person who poisoned it to have to come back and re-poison it again. Yeah, exactly. And then we could catch them in the act. Lots of really clever solutions that could be done here if you've got players that are willing to look for clever solutions. Yeah. Ultimately... Winged Wolf 99, I hope you have a good murder mystery. Yeah, I hope, I hope it goes really well, Winged Wolf. Um, like I said, they can be so, so satisfying and so much fun to run. So yeah. I, I really hope it goes well for you. You're going to you're gonna have a great time no matter what. Yeah. Uh, moving on to our next, next session help. Can I, can, I, can I make an extra comment about Winged Wolf? Sure. Uh, they said they were a new DM, right? Yeah. Um, man, what an ambitious and, and awesome... Uh, you know, trial. What an ambitious and awesome plot line yeah. to, to come at with an, as a new DM. Seriously, the Adventure Zone does that. Remember, I tried to run the time travel one, or absolutely the um, time loop one. Oof. Yeah, Griffin does a lot of really ambitious plot lines, and he has the benefit that his players are very willing to go along with it. And even that, you know, it's a podcast, so um, they don't talk about this a lot. But if if they like vastly stray off the path of something or something like that. Griffin can stop the podcast and be like, okay, let me explain this to you guys. Yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, so there are some extra advantages that maybe happen behind the scenes that you don't you don't necessarily know about. But, man, he does do some really ambitious plot lines. But you might know about it if he ever came on the podcast. Yeah, that's true. We could ask him about right? it. Right? Totally. Um, okay, next, next session help comes to us from Typhus Black. Typhus Black. Typhus Black. Sounds like a um, sounds like a good guy who you think is a bad guy when you first meet him. I was thinking like Jack Black's step cousin, Typhus. Yeah. I was thinking like Sirius Black. Oh yeah, Sirius from, Black from Harry Potter, who is a good guy, but you think he's a bad guy when you first meet him. Typhus Black asks. Typhus Black. Black. Kind of sounds like Typhoid Mary, but it's not. It's it Typhus. Does. Typhus Black asks. Low-level dragonborn wants wings. Mm. I'm running Curse of Strahd for the first time, but have run other games before. One of my players is a dragonborn ranger and would really like wings. The party just hit level four. I've read a bunch of posts about the difficulties flight can pose at lower levels and wanted some critiques of a compromise. As a feat, he can use his wings now. 
He can move up to his basic move speed while avoiding intervening obstacles and if passing a foe does not provoke opportunity attacks, but not if he is leaving combat. He can double his high jump height and have any falling damage he takes. I don't think this will be overly game-breaking while still giving him some useful options, but wanted another opinion. Okay, I do think the feed is fine. It sounds balanced. Um, there are races in the game, if you're using the expanded material, that can already fly from level one. The people's advice about flying is absolutely true. Having flying early on in the game means that all of a sudden any vertical obstacles are no longer obstacles. So if you go, you have to climb up this difficult-to-climb wall and get to the top, then the person who can fly just goes, cool, I just fly to the top. Um, and all of a sudden it's no longer an obstacle anymore. That's a problem, especially, you know, it can mean that you have to think very creatively as a game master to create interesting puzzles for people. Right, because you've got the typical, like, uh, there's a pit of lava and you're trying to get to the other side. How do you do it? Go. Right. And they go, I fly across. Right. And they just go, I fly I fly across and no big deal. And you go, okay, well, that wasn't really much of a challenge at all for them. Um, when you're planning your puzzles, when you're planning your challenges, you, if you're running a Curse of Strahd campaign, there may be challenges and puzzles that they just skip, basically, um, because they can fly. Even with just the feet as you've outlined it, uh, that might be the case where they're just going to basically skip um, some some random bit of, you know, jump over a gap or something like that. That being said, it's not always the worst thing in the world. Uh, it might mean that they skip over some, some pieces, and sometimes that's okay. Usually what I say for fly speed is that somebody who can fly can still only carry as much as they could carry if they were walking. So in other words, just because you can fly doesn't mean that you can carry the entire party on your back across it. Right, across totally. You're, you're a dragonborn, not a giant dragon. Right. Um, what that means is that even if you have one player who can fly, if you have a rest of the party who cannot fly, the lava pit might still pose an interesting challenge. It might mean the flying person is just flying and ferrying one person at a time across the lava pit. Um, but it does mean that it's not just instantly skippable. There right. are maybe some skill checks or something. Yeah, exactly, skill checks, or maybe they're tying a rope on the other side, or, you know, things things become easier in some ways and more difficult in other ways. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to say, I looked up, there is a feat um, from Unearthed Arcana Feasts for Races mm -hmm. that gives a Dragonborn flight. It says... You sprout draconic wings. With your wings, you have a flying speed of 20 if you aren't wearing heavy armor and aren't exceeding your carrying capacity. Mm -hmm. um, and what I like about that is your flying speed is lower, right, than your typical walking running speed because this is new to you. Um, you're heavy, <laughs> you know. Sure. You could, you could um, justify it any sort of way. But then I also like that it calls out that if you're wearing heavy armor, you're not going to be able to take off. Mm-hmm. I do like that bit, um, and that might be a good way to, to go about that. I don't know. Ultimately, you know, Aarakocra and Pixies can, can fly from, from level one. I actually don't know that it's that big of a deal to give the player just, you have you have wings. You want to play a Dragonborn that can fly? Okay, here you go. Uh, you can play a Dragonborn that can fly. I think the feat might be a good way to do it. I, honestly, at level five, Wizards can cast Fly anyway. That's a good point. Um, and when they cast it, they can include other people in their casting. So, like, yeah, but it does use up a, a slot. It uses up a spell slot. Like, and 
ultimately that might be the way to handle this, which is to say, you can fly, but your wings aren't developed enough. You can fly for a number of minutes per day equal to your level. Um, and then, uh, once you use it up, you're, you can't fly anymore for the, for the rest of that day. You got to rest, um, or maybe, a a number of minutes per short rest equal to half your level or something like that. And just force them to be able to have to do, take well, short rests. In they're only level fly. four. So you're saying they can only fly for two minutes a day. Yeah, maybe if you have new wings and you're not used to them, mm. it might take a lot of work to, to fly a whole bunch. Maybe you can glide, but you can't, uh. You can't continue to gain elevation. But frankly, I think all of those are sort of unnecessary stopgaps. I think you could probably turn around to this player and be like, cool, you want to play a flying character? What will you give up to get it? There you go. And then make them make a choice about what their character, what disadvantage they're going to take in order to right. gain this extra advantage. Yeah, you're, you're, you're a ranger. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe it means you, you cannot wear anything heavier than leather armor. Cool. Yeah. So now you have a low armor class to, to go along with your fly. That makes sense. Um, or maybe it means um, you're you're brittle and you're going to take a, a negative to your hit points or something like that because um, you've got you know uh, hollow bones like a bird or something like or that. Or maybe it means you can only carry so many arrows. Mm-hmm. Um, might be a good compromise. Honestly, I'd pose it back to the player and be like, you can have fly, but only if you give me sort of an equivalent compromise for for your character. And then I'd probably agree to whatever they said, short of like. My compromise is that my character is even more powerful. <laughs> um, but even if they said, like, my compromise is um, that I'm selfish or or my compromise is that I, uh, you know, I um, am, am my lust for gold increases because I'm more dragon-like. Um, I don't know. Those are creative. And even though those are role-play heavy rather than mechanical, I might still say yes. Uh, we've talked about this before where we've had players that, you know, making a, a player character like immune to fire or something like that. And there's there's a temptation sometimes as a game master to say, ooh, that seems really powerful. I don't know that I want to give that to my players. They're going to instantly solve lots of things with that. And especially when you do it on like a single player basis, just one character happens to have this special ability. I find that it actually rarely gets in the way of, of your campaigns. And you have a power as a game master to add new challenges that then overcome the extra powerful player character that you might have. So, yeah, speaking of the Adventure Zone, one of the characters in the graduation arc was all about being born on the sea and being mm-hmm. proficient on boats and all sorts of stuff. And they never went on a boat, yeah. you know? Like, it never, like they even talked about it in the um, wrap-up. They were like, oh, I never even got to be on a boat. Mm-hmm. I chose this whole seafaring character. <laughs> it was really silly. Um, I mean, I, I think that's exactly what often happens as you go... You know, I'm immune to, to acid damage or something, and you go, okay, great. Like, I'm not going to put any acid damage. Yeah, in. that happens. You guys are doing a fight on the plane of fire. Like I don't, you're never going to come across any acid. Uh, it's never going to come up. Uh, and I've had players do this actually more more than one time, where a player goes like, I can talk to and control any plants that I come across, and I go, well, we're going to be in a desert for pretty much this entire campaign. So you'll get to talk to one cactus, and that'll be it. Um, <laughs> and that cactus goes, I'm thirsty. Right. <laughs> but you can't have any. <laughs> nope, it's mine. It's mine, 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 mine. Mine, mine, mine. That's how cactus That's how cacti, how cacti, cacti. sound. <laughs> mine, mine, mine. They just 
seagulls, apparently. No, no. The seagulls I, like, of the... I like the idea because their arms are all very specific in how they grow, but no one knows why. Oh, he yeah. went that way. He <laughs> went that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'm pretty sure he I'm went that sure way. I'm definitely sure he went that way. <laughs> you're, you're just, you're just, you've just got a little bud. Well, I'm working on it. In 50 years, I'll tell you. I'll he tell went you that exactly way. which way he went. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll remember. Um, so anyway, I, I've definitely had this happen quite a bit. You get a player who like is like, great, I'm going to fly. And then you go, well, you're in a dungeon. There's nowhere to fly to. You're, uh, you know, the, fly the ceil- up and touch yeah, the, the ceiling. The ceiling's 10 feet high. You can't even get out of melee range from people. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know exactly what you're going to do with that. You touch the ceiling. It's greasy and gross. I will point out that especially as a ranged attack character, flying does give a distinct advantage in combat. And if you're doing a lot of combat in your campaign and you've got 50-foot tall ceilings or open open air areas, your ranger may go, I'm going to fly 300 feet in the air and then shoot arrows down at people at the maximum level of my bow range. Which is why you do the fly speed of 20. Well, yes. Or... And you um, fight a lot of wizards. Or you fight a lot of wizards. And you fight pe- wizards who are like, uh, yep, yeah, I'm still going to shoot magic missiles at you because I can see you and that's the only limitation for magic missile. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, or you you say, you know, if you're flying in the air and you're trying to shoot your bow, I need you to make checks to stay in flight. There you go. Or, or to stay on course. Yeah. Um, shooting a bow while flying gives you disadvantage might be a good way to, to balance something or like that. While, huh? while you're shooting your bow, um, your wings have to stay still. Right. So you're actually falling while you're shooting the bow. Yeah, or you have to make it's cons- very constitution saving throws or dexterity saving throws in order to continue to stay flying while shooting a bow. Or maybe like Legends of Zelda Breath of the Wild, you give them an endurance wheel. Yeah. Um, and you can say, ah, you can only do so many actions while flying before you have to land and rest a little bit. Mm. Um, all those might be, might be really good solutions. But once again, I don't know. In my experience... Most of the time, even if even when you have the player who's really trying to work work that thing to break the game, uh, it's not that hard to be like, awesome, you're not fly- fighting a group of flying creatures. Now they're all coming after you because you're the flying one. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, yeah, you could totally nerf it or right. you just let it happen and work around it. Yeah, and then you you change up the, the battles and the puzzles and the challenges so yeah. that so that now it's not quite the advantage that they wanted it to be. I would totally set an entire, like, mini arc um like balloon races and stuff oh that'd be fun uh you have to pull the balloon yeah that'd be <laughs> you're the flying one you get no i was just thinking that if they fell off they they would have their wings and it would it would make them feel good yeah i mean a lot of this is also to you know allow that the unique quality of this particular character and player are valuable to the group as a whole so now you're on an airship and you're the only one who can fly. Um, everybody else is fighting the the guys who jumped onto the airship. You've you've got the unique opportunity that you can attack the airship across the way, or um, you can fly up and warn the other airship. Yeah. Uh, so so your uniqueness allows you to to fulfill a certain unique role within the the battle, within the combat, within the puzzle, whatever the case may be. Totally. Um, great question. Yeah. Um, I totally like it. Also, like Dragonborn with wings. I think that's. I, I think wanted, that's just a cool idea. I wanted a dragon. My last Dragonborn character. I wanted to have wings, and I read that they didn't, and I was like, well, "All right, well, okay. All How right. cool would it have been? It would have been have really some cool. wings. You fly around. Seems awesome. Yeah. Well, 
In the meantime, we should take a break. Let's take a break. Hey, we're back. How was your break? It was great. It was a great break? It was a great break. What'd you do? Uh, I baked. You baked? Yeah. I make I make and bake. What'd you bake? Uh, cake. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I thought you were going to say like lemon bars or something like that. Oh, no. Cake and shake and bake? <laughs> and shake and bake? Yeah. And I helped. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. You are terrible. All right. Uh, we're moving on to... <laughs> what? We're not going to continue no. continue that joke? Oh, no. Okay. That sounds good. Um, ask a GM slash what's your, what's your ruling? What's your ruling? Um, this question comes from Iron Hunt. Iron Hunt. Is that like Ethan Hunt? Who's Ethan Hunt? He's an actor. I don't know Ethan Hunt. Actually, I think Ethan Hunt might be the name of... Uh, of uh, character from Mission Impossible. I think that's the character from Mission Impossible. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Um, Did he act in it? (laughs) (laughs) That might also be an actor named Ethan Hunt. You know, that sounds right. Iron Hunt. See, I almost said Ethan. Thanks. (laughs) Iron Hunt, whose real name is now Ethan. Yeah. Ethan says, (laughs) does Booming Blade consume the weapon used in the attack? I see that it has a silver piece cost, which is why I'm asking. Hmm. Um, so this is actually interesting because this is not the spell we're talking about, and yet this is the spell. So oh, I'm now we get to talk about this spell. I know we're going to do two spells actually, if you count booming blade as one of them. Oh, all right, cool. Um, it's part of the question. So booming blade is from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. It has a casting time of one action, range of self, components S M, which is a melee weapon worth at least one silver piece, and duration one round. And it says you brandish the weapon used in the spell's casting and make a melee attack with it against one creature within five feet of you. On a hit, the target suffers the weapon attack's normal effects and then becomes sheathed in booming energy until the start of your next turn. If the target willingly moves five feet or more before then, the target takes 1d8 thunder damage and the spell ends. At higher levels... Uh, like at 5th level, the melee attack deals an extra 1d8 thunder damage to the target on a hit, and the damage the target takes for moving increases to 2d8. Both damage rolls increase by 1d8 at 11th level, 2d8, and 3d8, and again at 17th level, 3d8, and 4d8. So essentially there is a silver piece melee weaponed worth weapon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was waiting for you to finish that one. Um, and they're wondering if it gets used up or not. So the answer to this one is actually is actually pretty simple. Um, in yes. spells no? and Dungeons and Dragons, maybe the answer is no. No, it does not get used really? up. In spells and Dungeons and Dragons, if it has a material component that has a value or a cost, it will specifically state when it is consumed in the spell's casting. So it will always say, if it says, like, a diamond worth 50 GP, it will then say in parentheses, consumed when cast or consumed when when the spell is cast. Okay, so you're saying it's not consumed, which means that you can use this same little weapon over and over and over again. Correct. It's also a pretty important part of this because, if I remember right, this this is a a, um, cantrip spell. 
So if it had a, a silver cost for every time you cast this cantrip, it would become uh, much harder to cast spell um, for for a player. No, what this really is is that it's just that the weapon that you use can't just be a wooden sword or something like that. It just has to be a sword or a weapon of some kind that just has a value of at least one silver piece. Um, how many silver to one gold? Uh, ten silver to a gold. Okay, because I never deal with anything other than gold. Yeah, I, I just don't give either. players I, gold. I so. mostly just be like, yeah, everything costs gold. So having it be worth a silver, I was like, brain broken. Yeah, don't know what mean. Um, but the it is a cool spell because it's basically like a tank spell. It it forces the person that you're fighting to have to fight you and focus on you instead of trying to move away and attack somebody Yeah, else. it's interesting. It's a range of self because I was thinking like it would be kind of cool to have the, the range be the weapon, you know, essentially. Like I hand this to somebody else. Sure. And uh, that would be interesting, except that the actual thing that you're doing here is that it's a self range because you're making an attack right. as a part of the action. Um, Booming Blade's a great spell. And and I don't think you should feel at all deterred by the the one silver piece requirement on the yeah. on the weapon. You can have ten of those for one gold. Um, that's totally true. <laughs> and because it does not actually consume the weapon, you don't have to worry about like having to carry around an entire backpack full of weapons just because you're focused on using booming blade on every turn. It would be interesting if it left a mark on it though. Well, that'd be kind of cool. Like have like a little like you see this little Notch. tiny sword and it's got um veins like marble hmm. running all the way around it that glow that could be kind of cool it'd be really fun for like an eldritch knight to have to have something like that um the the spell itself is is an awesome spell to use i, I totally totally feel free to use it cool yeah. well speaking of spells we should move on oh, to use that spell use that spell um, today's use that spell is dust devil. Ooh, a dust devil. It's a dusty devil. Ooh. Dust devil, level two, casting time one action, range 60 feet, components VSM, and the M, or material, is just a pinch of dust. Yeah. Just a pinch. Just a pinch. Um, duration, concentration up to one minute. You know, that means if it's just a pinch of dust, you could be like inside of a mansion and be like... Do the white glove test and go, hmm, this is really dusty. And then go, whoosh, dust devil. It's totally true. Oh, man. It would be a pretty pretty fun That would be moment. hilarious. Yeah. Clean <laughs> this up. Your room is a tornado. <laughs> anyway, choose an unoccupied five-foot cube of air that you can see within range, which means it could be anywhere. Hmm. Um, an elemental force that resembles a dust devil appears in the cube and lasts for the spell's duration. Any creature that ends its turn within five feet of the dust devil must make a strength saving throw. On a failed save, the creature takes 1d8 bludgeoning damage and is pushed 10 feet away. On a successful save, the creature takes half as much damage but is not pushed. Hmm. As a bonus action, you can move the dust devil up to 30 feet in any direction, including up or down, right? Ooh. If the dust devil moves over sand, dust, loose dirt, or small gravel, it sucks up the material and forms a 10-foot radius cloud of debris around itself that lasts until the start of your next turn. The cloud heavily obscures its area. At higher levels, when you cast the spell using a spell slot of third level or higher, the damage increases by 1d8 for each slot level above second. And this comes from page 17 from the Elemental Evil's Player's Companion. 
It's kind of a fun spell. It's, yeah. I like the push mechanic is, is really great. Yeah. Now, you know what dust devils are. And when I think dust devil, I think like, you know, a little demon. Oh, like a Tasmanian dusty. devil? Yeah, who's dusty. <laughs> yeah. But like, what? tell the tell the listeners at home who where you came from and well, what do you do? Uh, dust devils are common in Arizona where I grew up. Uh, especially if you're driving across like the, the gap between Phoenix and Tucson. There's a big, long, flat area, and you'll see lots of dust devils in the in the summer when you're driving driving along there. A dust devil is just a tornado. It's a very small tornado that that sort of appears. It doesn't stretch like all the way up to the sky. It's more like a like imagine a tornado that's only a couple of feet high. Or, yeah, it's like five foot tall, really, right? Yeah, um, you might see them as as tall as like ten or fifteen feet, but. Uh, usually not much much bigger than that in my experience. And they've got the distinctive funnel, and it's it's really an interesting. You're like, that's a tornado over yeah. there, and then I, I like that's what I would say. I'd go, oh my god, a tornado, and you go, no, nah, it's just a dust devil. Honestly, they look quite a bit like the Tasmanian devil while he's spinning, um, which I'm sure was a was a reference that they originally had, had played up on. Uh, but that is kind of what a dust devil looks like. So they're cool. I've actually never been in a dust devil, but my understanding is you can put on some goggles and yeah i was gonna a, say it's a funny experience you need to, to put goggles on around. i'm sure it's not safe <laughs> but there are um attractions at like theme parks and stuff where you can get inside this box and like feel what it feels like to be inside of a tornado oh yeah i've seen those i've never done them because they're they usually cost way extra and there's a line and i'm like why would i want also that? it's just a big windy box it's a big know. wind box why yeah. do i want this it doesn't even have money swirling around yeah <laughs> Now, now a money tornado uh, that I'm might be a different. Now the um, the uh, canned soup tornado. I am not going to do that one. Yeah, very painful. Um, so this is interesting because you can choose a five foot cube of air that you can see within range, which means that you could do it above somebody. You could do it below somebody. You could do it anywhere. That's true. And because it pushes people away, you could potentially put it next to somebody and then push them off a cliff or something like that. That's true. Yeah, um, but they have to make a strength saving throw. Mm-hmm. I also, just for, for reference, whenever an NPC or a PC gets pushed off of something that would then potentially cause a tremendous amount of damage to for falling, I give an additional save. Mm. Uh, basically, you have a save to catch yourself as well. You're very nice. Yes, I'm very nice that way. However, I do that for both PCs and NPCs. So if, an, if a PC wants to push somebody off a cliff, um, I say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to emphasize that I'm going to give them an extra save to prevent falling off the cliff because that is what I would do for you too. Now, the thing that gets me here is that it says, well, first of all, it says um, an elemental force that resembles a dust devil. So it's not actually a dust devil. It just looks like one. Yeah, yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, no, the thing that really gets me here is that as a bonus action, you can move the dust devil up to 30 feet in any direction. Hmm. But... Here's the thing is that it's just any creature that ends its turn there, mm-hmm. which means that I could like drag this dust devil across the ground and like land it on top of you. And you are not affected by it until three turns later when it's your turn. Not only that, but I move. And so I'm not affected by it at all because I didn't end my turn there. Right. Yeah. It seems a little annoying that like, I have this literal tornado going around the room, and it doesn't actually push anybody unless they, like, do-do-do-do-do stand. Yeah. Um, I guess it's more for blocking. Like, uh, I can block off an entire area 
uh, so that people can't stand there. I could put it right in front of me, and then nobody can come and stand next to me because because there's this big dust devil that would push them away from that. Um, however, it would probably push them past me, um, which presents a whole a whole another problem. But it does obscure the area, so would that mean that like archers and stuff couldn't fire things through it? I mean, they could, but they would have. Uh, you would have a uh, what is it called? Complete cover. Mm. Um, so they wouldn't wouldn't even know where you are to be able to figure out how to target you. But I would argue that if someone's trying to shoot an arrow into a dust devil, that it would like you know blow off course. Yeah, I would argue that same thing. Um, so I'd probably say that you can't really shoot projectiles through it. Um, but I might make that argument on a case by case basis, especially because the spell doesn't specifically state it. There is actually another spell that project that is like a wind wall that specifically states that it prevents. Um, ammunition or, or projectiles from fl- flying through it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Isn't there like a ring of tornado or something like that? Uh, I don't know. That sounds familiar. It's, it sounds it's, really... You know what I'm thinking it's of? pretty cool. I'm just thinking of Captain Planet. That's oh, what I'm thinking that's of. It's just the Captain Planet. The wind. wind the wind guy. <laughs> wind. Yeah. Yeah. But if there was, I would um, wonder if it would actually also be able to control the dust devil. Uh, that'd be kind of interesting. Uh, Although, I summon a dust, dust devil and use your wing, wind of tor- ring of tornado in order to to manipulate to it. manipulate it and but move it around. I, I would argue that it wouldn't be able to because it's not actually a dust devil; it just resembles it. It just resembles a dust devil. It's not really made of wind. Wind isn't really happening here. You just think it's happening. Yes, <laughs> it's all in your mind. That might feel like wind that just pushed you off that cliff, but it wasn't. It just resembled it. It's actually Derek. Yeah. Damn it, Derek. <laughs> Damn it, Derek. <laughs> it's actually just a pile of unseen servants that are just flailing about. <laughs> <laughs> it resembles a, a, a dust devil, but you're just getting pushed by a big pile Man, of Man, those servants. unseen servants have really been working on their moves. Oh, yeah. It's very, like, synchronized. Yeah, synchronized, synchronized swimming. Uh, servanting. Sur- synchronized <laughs> yeah. servanting. There's a competition. <laughs> All right, well, Dust Devil. Cool. I think it's a good spell. I think there's lots of creative uses for it. I like spells that aren't just um, you attack them in this different way. I like a lot of push and pull spells, too. Um, I think there's something really fun about about being able to set up uh, strategic stuff in a a map or a a gridded battlefield where where I can push somebody around into a better position or something like that. So we should find a way to wrap up. All right. How about that? <laughs> um, <laughs> that brings us to a close. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's not what I meant. <laughs> it worked pretty well, though. Um, you can go to our website at nextsessionpodcast.com where you can submit questions and feedback. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Session and on Instagram at Next Session Podcast. So thanks so much for listening. And hopefully next time we will not be inside of this little tunnel. We will Although actually... it's worked pretty well. It's I, I hope it's so. Bad. You say that, but we haven't edited it. I haven't it. actually listened to the podcast at all. <laughs> it might be terrible. It's got to be better than last week's. Yeah, that's, that's for, sure. for sure. Well, I'm Adam Johns. And I'm Alyssa Johns. So tune in next time and we'll help you prep for your next session. Bye. Bye. Bye.